on this episode of the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. That's great. I love having these kinds of conversations. And we didn't even get fighty about it. It was nice. I know. Very civil. Dale hasn't reached out and throttled me yet. Yeah, so. just wait. Oh, my God. I'm wait, it's waiting for it on Monday. She's going to punch me in the back of the head. <laughs> This is the Wild Rose Vet Podcast with Dr. Savannah Howes-Smith. I have a very special guest today. Uh, her name is Dr. Dale Putra, and she is actually a colleague of mine, and she's a veterinarian at Rocky Rapids Veterinary Service with me. And I'm very happy to speak with her today because uh, Dale is a very, uh, very fun person to chat with, and I love having discussions with her on many different types of topics. Dr. Dale and I have been working together. I believe you started, it was in May, wasn't it? Yeah, the beginning of May sometime. I have to say it's been fantastic watching you uh, fill into, like, fit your role as a general practitioner. And I'm loving seeing how that's evolving as we uh, <laughs> as we work together. Um, and one of the ways that I think is really interesting uh, how you fit into the dynamic of the clinic is that in some ways I like the new perspectives you bring on animal and pet ownership. Um, and uh, I especially love it when uh, <laughs> when it's different from what the other veterinarians are expecting with uh, things like human-animal bond, the way that animals are treated, and the way that animals are kept. <laughs> um, I like it because a lot of it's in line with uh, some of the stuff that I've uh, experienced while working with uh, things like Canadian Animal Task Force, Alberta Helping Animal Society. So I like how we both are on the same page that animals uh, deserve the treatment and respect of being animals as opposed to surrogate humans. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I feel that that's something that's not a popular opinion in small animal medicine. I 100% agree. Like, I feel like even in my graduating class and that sort of stuff, like, most people treat animals as, like you said, kind of like surrogate humans and that sort of stuff. And I think that I just don't, I wasn't raised in the same way to think that i guess and i just think that animals we can't anthropomorphize them to think that they're the same as we are and deserve the same treatments and the same um tests run and um same sort of life that we have i think that's kind of unrealistic i wonder uh, many times i i think that it's part of the root of why we see so many health and behavioral problems with a lot of our animals that we see like our dogs and our cats is that they aren't being respected as the animal that they are. Mm -hmm. um, they're having these unrealistic expectations put on them to be a small human <laughs> when, I mean, that's that's not their nature, right? You know, mm -hmm. expecting them to uh, provide constant companionship and uh, expecting them to sit nicely at home all hours of the day and, and uh, you know, and then come home and be perfectly behaved, you know, those kinds of things I just find is... I wonder how much of it is a root of all these anxiety and aggression behaviors that we're seeing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's unpopular opinion in our field. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it definitely like, is. To say that, like, that's like, at the end of the day, to me, like, the pet, it, it's a pet and it's not the same. And I think that people, it skews their ideas because I think lots of times people pursue things for their pets because that's what they want and not what their pet wants or needs and that sort of stuff. That's a great point. I really, really like mm -hmm. that idea. 
because that's that's true, right? And you have these. I mean, I think a classic example of that is having an animal with a terminal illness that's that's not doing very well, but they have in their mind this emotional milestone they have to mm. meet. You know, like it, they have to make it to their birthday or they have to make it to Christmas. And so, rather than considering that you know the animal's suffering, um, they have to wait to this arbitrary date because there's an emotional attachment mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, I think that it's it's hard to separate our own sort of kind of emotions from the pet. And at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know if the pet cares, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. um, like if they, <laughs> if the pet cares, yeah. if it's wearing uh, a pink sweater or a blue sweater or whatever, like it, it yeah, as long as they're sensitized, desensitized yeah. to it and it's not traumatizing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I agree. And I, and I think that is like kind of looping back to like indigenous identity and that sort of stuff. I do think, I think that mm-hmm, way, mm-hmm. And which is a little bit different than lots of our counterparts, as you know. I think I think that way because of how I was raised and how to respect an animal um, as that animal and the power it has instead of giving it our power and that sort of stuff, which I think is more of an Indigenous ideology. Um, and kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think it's a different level of respect and um, understanding. Yeah, I definitely agree with you for sure. Yeah, I think that's great. And I really it's interesting because I I, f- I find that um, I really started to appreciate that more when I started working with Canadian Animal Task Force and their free roaming dog populations mm-hmm. and the way that the way that they're kept is reflecting a more uh, I, I want to say like a lifestyle that's more consistent with how dogs prefer to live. <laughs> You know, that they've got lots of space to to uh, run and to roam and they've got all these different animals they're interacting with. They can exhibit normal behaviors um, such as digging and barking and running and all these things. And uh, and they're not alone. They're always with like packs of other dogs. There's kids around. There's all these uh, other other creatures to interact with. And they've got they're outside in the, you know, in the weather and everything. So it's just I've always it's. It's interesting how in one perception, some people would say that those animals are not well cared for and neglected because they're outside, whereas really they're they're actually in many ways much better off. Um, I often I often try to like sum it up by saying the dogs that I see on reserves and the free roaming dog populations, they may have um, not as great physical health, but their mental health is leaps and bounds better than most of the ones that we see that are kept indoors only. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think I struggle with that, like even as like a clinician and kind of learning what my values are and that sort of thing. Because um, like when I grew up, I think that there was lots of dogs who didn't get any veterinary care or they got one vaccine and were considered fully mm-hmm. vaccinated by the owner, right? Or <laughs> like, mm-hmm. don't don't get yeah. dewormed. <laughs> they don't get anything, but they were happy, well-behaved, healthy dogs, yeah. like in my yeah. mind. And yeah. Yeah. so then as a practitioner, when people bring me dogs and I'm like, well, really like this dog, it, it should be dewormed um, so and so often. It should have vaccines so and so often. It should have this, this, and this. And then it's going to charge you 300 bucks a year or more than that or whatever, just to mm-hmm. do basic care. And people are like, no, like my dog's fine at home. It lives a good life. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I can't argue with you, you know, because yeah. like, and I know that <laughs> yeah. I've been trained to think differently about this in this kind of mm-hmm. um, like Eurocentric educational system. And um, mm-hmm. I know that I know better as far as like health of animals and studies and that sort of stuff goes. But then I also have this competing view of like, mm-hmm. 
no, you're probably right. That dog is healthy and, you know, in a lot of ways and it it's well cared for <laughs> yeah. and it eats well. And like the owners love it more mm-hmm. than anything. Like who am I mm-hmm. to step in and change that to some extent? You know what I mean? So it's, it's something yeah, I struggle yeah. with clinically. And I think that's kind of the same as like, I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. I think that I like, uh, I mean, I think we're on a good, we're a good tangent on that where, um, I wonder if that would be one of the ways you could decolonize the education system that we went mm-hmm. through is to teach an alternative viewpoint of how animals should be kept. Um, and I feel like uh, over time, I, I feel like the role that I that I fill in those kinds of situations, because you're, you're right, like there will be ones that come in where the animal like, you know, he's, he's got a sporadic vaccine history. Maybe he's been dewormed once or twice, but he's otherwise doing pretty well. A lot of times what I'll do with that is, is I usually don't put up a big fight. I just tell people, I'm like, here's the diseases that we might be preventing. Um, do with that information what mm-hmm. you will. Because <laughs> um, then they can. At, I feel like that's more so my role is to provide the education of what's out there available right. for people. And then they can make that decision right. themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, if they if they if they're concerned about it or they're worried about it, sure, we'll go through with that. But if they're not, all good. You know, I gave you the info and you can you can run with it, do with it what mm-hmm. you like. Um, and I, I like I like initiatives such as task force and ahas because what we're doing in those cases is for those people that maybe do want to have those vaccines on board or the dewormers but simply don't have the means. Um, I like it because it feels like we are improving the general physical health in a population where the mental health is really really well. In the animals I'm talking to, um, the uh, the mental health of those animals is great. They don't have those weird behavior issues we see or the stereotypes or the anxiety mm-hmm. issues. Um, and so I like that we can shore up the physical aspect by doing things like uh, vaccinations, distemper ring, uh, like the ring vaccinations and distemper outbreaks like that mm-hmm. one we went on, um, providing parvo vaccines, dewormering and stuff, because then we can reduce the amount of parasites being transmitted to people. I feel like that level of care is um, quite appreciated. Um, and at least it always feels like it's appreciated anytime I go to those communities and, and provide that and try to um, close the gap between those dogs' uh, mental and mm-hmm. physical health uh, disparities, uh, you know, which is why it's kind of frustrating because in our own practice, I like to try to improve the mental well-being of these animals we see that maybe have good, you know, okay physical health. Most of them are obese with dental disease, but <laughs> um, at least they've got, like, vaccines and stuff on board. Um, but then their mental mm-hmm. health is crap. And I've actually find it way harder to try to uh, improve the way that that the dogs are being interacted with because they're never treated like dogs. They're treated like small mm-hmm. humans. And then and then it it makes them weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have kind of an intense question for you that's a bit off topic. But um, I've been getting this question a lot talking to different people like in the um, diversity, equity, inclusion um areas mm-hmm. and it's something i've been struggling with as well is kind of the idea of like volunteerism right and i've kind of talked mm-hmm. to you a little bit about this because i i really do agree like i think task force and going out to communities and you know this like i think that mm-hmm. in my ideal world i would work on like reserves and settlements in alberta and provide veterinary mm-hmm. like preventative care to those areas and like mobile practice and like work with those communities and be there and like um, be sustainable and those sorts of things. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I do really think that um, task force is a really good initiative and like all the things you're talking about. Um, But I keep getting this question about volunteerism and I don't know if I have a good Mm -hmm. stance on it. 
Yeah, volunteerism is a big mm-hmm. issue. So, I mean, as a as a definition, the way that I view volunteerism is you have um, you have somebody who's traveling outside their community to a cultural group or a community that is not theirs, not one that they belong to, and they are swooping in, doing some service um, that may or may not be helpful or wanted by the community, and then they mm-hmm. leave again. And, I mean, is, that's probably similar to, to your definition of volunteerism, yeah. hey? Yeah. And so there's, there's huge issues that come with volunteerism. Um, it's not sustainable. So you're not affecting a long-term change from, you know, within that community itself so that they start relying on outside sources instead of relying on mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, you have issues where you've got savior complexes coming into play, where you've got one community that assumes that they're superior to the other and the way that they do it is better. So that's why they're coming in to um, do things their way because they think that it's mm-hmm. better. Um, there's certainly a lot of uh, colonialism pl- applies to that as well with that savior complex for sure. Um, and sometimes they do more harm than good. You know, there's a lot of examples around the world where somebody goes in with the best intentions and then they actually make things worse. So I think those are all very valid criticisms of any uh, charitable work that's done, um, and uh, and it's not uh, it's it's easy to fall mm-hmm. into volunteerism at hundred percent. I mean, you see it all the time in veterinary school where they were like, oh, you know, let's travel to Ghana and let's go, mm-hmm. you know, look at some stuff, and but they don't. I don't know how much actual work on the ground mm-hmm. is done. <laughs> And how much of it is lasting and how much of it is appreciated and used by the community itself. And I think kind of my perspective on that, because I did that as a pre-vet student as I, and actually as a high school student as well, I went to different like um, like overseas and like, like, honestly, I think that the big thing with that is that you're paying for something that locals could do very easily if they had the financial mm-hmm. resources and stuff. And then we're mm-hmm. all standing mm-hmm. there, like putting up fence or like vaccinating dogs or whatever. And it's like, well, these people could easily do that. They're just like, it's a learning mm-hmm. experience for us. Right. And I don't think that people understand that. I think people think like you're kind of describing like this white savior complex and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like people think that we're going there to like save the dogs or we're going there to like save, (laughs) save the elephants or whatever. And that's not the case. You're going there to provide a little bit of like financial backing and get a good educational experience. It's not about you. Mm -hmm, It's about, you know, mm -hmm. like if anything, you're paying to have people teach you, not like you teaching others, you know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm, and yeah. And like, I don't think it's the same, like, I think like in Canada or in Alberta specifically in the ideal world, we would have enough indigenous veterinarians that they could go back home to their communities, set up clinics and work mm-hmm. individually mm-hmm. in those communities and that sort of thing. Um, that would be vastly preferable. Right. But the thing is, is that that's not something that we can provide for one because of the shortage of veterinarians and then the difficulties mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. that indigenous people face in the educational system and like it's just not mm-hmm. like a reasonable thing so i think that well i mean it's it's something that i think we should oh yeah 100 percent. i don't know if it would it just wouldn't be something that would happen in the next like five to ten years i'd imagine <laughs> it's a long term goal vets are in alberta in general like it's not something i think we're going to mm-hmm. see in the next 20 years yeah yeah i don't know i it's been something that's been like morally bothering me because i think that mm-hmm. even though like people like you and I and lots of the people that run organizations who do spay and neuter clinics and that sort of thing. I think mm-hmm. that lots of the people 
lots of volunteers and other stuff that take part in it maybe don't see it that way. So there definitely is a subsection of uh, volunteers that are there um, because they feel like they're saving animals from the situation mm-hmm. they're in. Um, the good thing is, is that it's at least I don't find that mentality in the uh, leadership right. of the group. It's more so the the volunteers on the ground, which is still harmful mm-hmm. because they'll they'll often be the ones interacting with the community mm-hmm. members. So um, I think in those cases, what's important is to recognize that bias and provide volunteer training about what the um, what the goal of the organization is and what the goal is when right. you're there. Um, so like with the with the task force, sometimes there's uh, people butting heads about um, surrendering animals, for example, um, where animals should be taken away off reserve and um, put into the foster like rescue system instead. And one of the things that actually drew me towards task force rather than some of the other, because there's actually lots of organizations that will go and do what are called mm-hmm. dog pulls where they'll go in there and they'll remove a bunch of dogs uh, from mm-hmm. the community. And the reason I like task <laughs> force is that the goal is not to pull animals. Mm-hmm. The goal is to keep the animals in the community with their owners. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, it sounds like it's not a big deal, but it, oh, it's I a feel huge it deal. And that's really, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's the, the purpose. And that's actually the same um, idea with Alberta Helping Animal mm-hmm. Society is that we are trying to keep animals in the household mm-hmm. that they're from rather than trying to find a new home for them that maybe has more money to deal mm-hmm. with the problems. Um, and I feel like as although no organization is going to be perfect mm-hmm. and you're not going to get all the volunteers on the same page, as long as the core, I think as long as the core goals of the group or the organization or what they're doing is fulfilling that mandate of, you know, keeping animals in the community in the way that they're wanting to keep them, I think that's what's going to separate it from volunteerism from actually being useful. Yeah, yeah. and I, I agree. And that, like, kind of the combination of what we talked about is usually how I've been answering when people ask me about mm-hmm. that. But it still feels mm-hmm. like, I don't know, I still, and I think it's just my own thing I have to sort out, you know, to come up with, like, a good, mm-hmm, solid mm-hmm. belief and answer to these questions. But um, mm-hmm. I wanted to get your opinion on it because it's something that I've been asked a lot. And I'm like, you know what? I think that there's pros and cons to everything. Oh, absolutely. There's definitely we've uh, there's a lot of criticisms with what mm-hmm. we do as well, for sure. So, I mean, I, like you said, in the ideal world, we would have enough uh, trained indigenous individuals that could go back to their community and uh, provide those services themselves. But I think it's something to work towards. Um, in the meantime, we can <laughs> we can provide some help until that happens. <laughs> is kind of how I feel mm-hmm. with that. So, and at the very least, I like that. Um, they interact with the community and we encourage community volunteers is also a really big one because I find a lot of the other um, organizations that work on on reserves maybe don't tap into local uh, talent and local mm-hmm. resources. Um, but uh, I know like the dog care and control programs and uh, other task force initiatives 100% rely on community members only to volunteer with those. Yeah, for sure. But Dale, I'm glad that you bring up that topic because it can be it can be hot button, especially if it's a, an initiative that's like near and dear to your heart. And I think it's important to uh, continually, you know, question what the mm-hmm. hell you're doing <laughs> in a lot of these situations to make sure that you don't uh, veer off off track. Because I think it's really easy to get caught up with. Uh, um, thinking you're doing the right thing and doing a good job, but it's really nice to sit down and analyze, like, are we actually accomplishing what we want? And uh, it reminds me, uh, I think it was two or three years ago, we had a general meeting with task force, and they actually had one of those moments where they were like, we were looking at the data from the last 10 years, and populations, while they've stabilized, have not really decreased, and we are still seeing issues with um, 
like uh, dog aggression. We're still seeing uh, kids and, and people getting bit on reserves. We're still seeing a lot of these same issues and we're not addressing them solely with spay-neuter. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they'd actually decided at that point is they were going to strengthen how much time and effort and volunteers that they were doing with building ground-up dog care control programs on different right. um, yeah. mm-hmm. different communities. And uh, so it was really refreshing to, to mm-hmm. see that. Um, to have like a little course correction that maybe, you know, considering like, hey, even though it's fun and sexy and cool to, to just go and spay and neuter right. like 300 yeah. dogs in a weekend, um, are we having the lasting impact that we want? And they found that the answer was kind of like lukewarm, like, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> and then reevaluating and seeing like what are some ways that we can actually improve uh, what we're doing uh, for a more longer term, sustainable, community driven type of uh, yeah. standpoint. It's like uh, check yourself. <laughs> before, before you, you wreck, wreck yourself, yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like we say that at least once yeah. a day at work yeah. <laughs> that was a fun topic Dale I like that thank you for listening to the Wild Rose Vet Podcast if you like the show please leave us a 5 star rating and a review and while you're at it why not tell your friends about us subscribe to us on Spotify Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening to us right now Check out the show notes to see where you can find us on social media and for more information on the Dr. Savannah Wild Rose Vet television series. The Wild Rose Vet podcast is hosted by Dr. Savannah Howe-Smith, produced by Trent Wilkie, Shirley McLean, Dylan Wirtz, Tanya Conigotier, and Valerie Oud-Marchand. Recorded by Ian Armstrong at Wolf Willow Studios, with original music by Wayne LaVallee.